Welcome to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. In our first episode, Croc Institute faculty members Mary Ellen O'Connell, the Robert and Marion Short Professor of Law and Research Professor of International Dispute Resolution, and George A. Lopez, Professor Emeritus of Peace Studies, discuss international law, peace studies, aesthetics, realism, and more. Hello, my name is Mary Ellen O'Connell, and I'm here today with George Lopez. We're both members of the faculty of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, and we're making the first Kroc podcast. We're going to discuss today my new book, The Art of Law in the International Community, and We really want to hone in on the aspect of this book that should be of interest to everyone who cares about peace. And that's the linkages between this book and how it exposes law and the role of law in promoting peace and peace studies. Since I have George here, and George taught me what I know about peace studies when I was a student in his experimental phase of teaching faculty what peace studies is. I would like him to remind me or update me and all of you listening. How are you describing the field of peace studies in 2019, George? Well, thanks, Mary Ellen, and thanks for having me in the first CrocCast. I'm delighted to be here for this discussion and also delighted about the publication of your book, which uh, echoes so many of your important themes over the years for us at Croc. I think that the definition of peace studies is still a kind of tripod, or tripod, I guess I would say. The first is we've always been concerned about what is the latest research, discussion, practical things we learn about what causes violence and how it might be curtailed. So one might say, what causes violence and how do we get to violence prevention? The second leg has always been, are there techniques, mechanisms, philosophies, rationales that will work and move us from conflict resolution to conflict transformation? And in the third area, probably the most exploratory dynamic, partly where I think your book and your concerns live is, what are the norms, institutions, and behavioral and policy creations we must make to get to a practical piece that works? In the first two areas, we do a lot of deriving from what we know from practice and deriving what we see from research. The third area is partly derivation, and you explore so well in the book the roots that we should understand for the power of law and why they've been either discarded or distracted over the years. But also you're asserting a need for behavioral change, which is intentional, which is related to partly what we know, but partly for the creation of a piece that we want to be, because the other frameworks, the other paradigms, the other arguments for how to get to peace have been wanting. I agree with you. I think the third point in terms of what norms and institutions do we need to create for sustainable peace, but I actually think your other two points resonate with the book as well. I actually wrote the book because I'm just astounded, as I know you are, by the constant turn of governments to military force in trying to solve the world's problems. We see this vast array of failure through military force. We were just talking about 
the Iraq War, the Iraq invasion 2003. What a terrible disaster. But you could say the same about NATO's intervention in Libya in 2011, ongoing civil war. So I don't want to dominate our conversation with the failure of war. I think people listening to this will agree those two examples, I think, speak volumes. So my question in approaching the book was, plainly, it's not enough to say that invading Iraq was unlawful. I said that to as many people as I could. It was unlawful. We had major debates. I know of only a handful of international lawyers, and they were associated with their governments who were involved in the invasion, that invading Iraq would be wholly unlawful. And that seemed to make no difference. The United States Congress voted with very few exceptions to support that invasion. So I was asking the more preliminary questions. Why is this norm, this principle, prohibiting the use of force not being honored? And I also think your second point about techniques, international law has long been considered the antithesis of violence. Law, in general, is what human beings evolved so that they'd have a way to resolve their disputes other than through force or status, family relations and hierarchical Mm -hmm. relations. So that's what we've had. We've had that technique, and we used to know that in peace studies. But something I hope we'll get to in a minute, I think that that's really been lost. So international law gives us the norms, the institutions, the UN is an institution of international law, international courts are, but also the techniques of conflict resolution. But let me say just one more word about your first point, what causes violence? And I suggest in the book, and I really would value your reaction to this, that much of our turn to military force and away from law is a mind game. It's about this idea that realism truly describes the world. And if you're in a realist mindset, that says that material power, force and money, military force and money count over everything. And therefore, why would you turn to an idea, an ideational construct like law, when you should be turning always to money and military force. So I truly think this idea of realism, and I try to unpack that in the book and explain, when you've over-concentrated on realism, you forget that there are other reasons to do law besides force and gain. And that third reason to do law is because it's the right thing. But Will you defend your colleagues in political science who are obsessed with realism, who see that as the only proper explanatory theory of the world? I don't think some of them need defense because they are either in the camp that sees this as the sole paradigm by which you can explain past and recent history, and therefore a countervailing weighty force against more boring topics like international law or the ones who see realism as a choice among alternatives that they believe are less proven. And it's the latter group that I think is significant here in the way you treat it in the book. Mm -hmm. And that is that in addition to an embracing of a realist paradigm about the way the world works and therefore the way it ought to work, there's never a full and uh, honest empirical assessment about how these things have worked in the past. If law is perceived as weak because it doesn't work always or most often, any serious analysis of either 
military intervention, even if it's for humanitarian purposes, as in Libya, as you raised, or the decision of states to go to war in an aggressive way, whether it be between one another, as Iran and Iraq in the 80s, or the U.S. preventive war in 2003 against Saddam Hussein, the track records of those are just crazy and that empirics doesn't substantiate them. I actually see the fulcrum point in our modern era as the decision by the United States at the September 11th and September 12th to decide that the attacks from Al-Qaeda were not an international criminal conspiracy that led to an attack against the United States. Right. In fact, that was the moment for me as an analyst in which we put any semblance of international law playing a role here to bed in favor of what we thought a strong state under attack was expected to do internationally, which was to go into another country, invade it, take it over, exterminate the terrorists that they has, and, and then to uh, find a way to make sure that uh, neighboring countries like Pakistan and others knew that uh, similar fates would befit them if, if they continued to harbor these people. So we use the traditional realist and militaristic war model, partly because that's what we thought great states do, rather than, in that moment, taking this to the United Nations Security Council, which we wound up doing anyway by the end of the month to look for the authority and the mechanisms to freeze al-Qaeda assets internationally through targeted financial sanctions. Right. But we were unwilling to get a Chapter 7 resolution to, in a sense, line up the international posse to go after the criminals, because the criminals, in fact, were in multiple states, right. as we knew. And the fact that Osama bin Laden under attack and his folks can escape to the hills of Pakistan and uh, we're not able to catch him. And then going into Pakistan raises other national security issues is the vintage failure of the realist paradigm. And instead, where are we? We're in an extended war. We're even, as you and I sit here right. today, the testimony before Congress of some people are that the perceived linkages between al-Qaeda and Iran must be in our sights when we <laughs> think about the threat that Iran makes to the globe. Well, I think that's the most fascinating part of realism, that people are such true believers in might over right, that military force is the most effective answer to the world's problems, that they see a military solution to every problem when it's patently clear you don't need to do empirical research, as you just suggested, that this is the wrong way to go. So you invent realist explanations for why you need to use military force. And when it shows that that's absolutely false, as in the case of Iran right now, having any links to al-Qaeda, you make them up. And that's actually what happened on 9-11. I recall the last Secretary of State and the Bush Secretary Eagleburger saying on 9-11, Bush, the father's administration, that you just have to attack these people. You've got to attack somewhere. It doesn't matter right. if you have a legal link right. that you can show by the evidence who did it. But I would push you a little bit, George, because I think rather than that being a beginning, mm -hmm. it was a culmination of a long, slow road that led us to a really catastrophic moment, 9-11, and how we reacted. And we're dealing with the aftermath of that absolutely wrong decision on 9-11 to go to war on our own, 
And I'm going to suggest to you that the beginning of this realist track, and this is what I talk about in the book, I unpack this, happens at the University of Chicago in 1951 Mm -hmm. when a U.S. diplomat, George Kennan, came to give a series of lectures and he condemned legalism, moralism. And that's when this country, which had prided itself on building the rule of law in the world, it was our idea to have an international court of justice. We take all those techniques off the table and we go for building our military force. And when you even say to people, but really we could have forsworn nuclear weapons, we could have built the institutions of the UN and really committed ourselves, people can't, they just think that that's a path to suicide because we've been so, our orientation is so deep. But I actually would love to pursue the conversation in slightly a different way because of another thing. So I think we've beat up on realism quite enough. I think the other thing I talk about in the book is a point that maybe you weren't even focusing on as a major point, but I think it is that international law is boring. And that had as much to do with why I wanted to write this book as anything. I have spent a lot of time as you discussing war with people. And I'm actually in one of the hottest areas of international law because people love to talk about how you can find exceptions and loopholes so that the Libya intervention is lawful and here's an excellent argument about how you can look at the international law hanging by your feet upside down and around the corner to find even the invasion of Iraq, 2003 lawful. So that's the fun part of it, but it's the war part. And people think the peace studies part, the use of courts, the commitment to norms against the use of force as boring. How did we get to that point? When in fact, what I hope I've revealed in the book, especially the chapter on courts as theater, Mm -hmm. is that we can begin to look at international law as just as exciting as a study of military force. I mean, every military person who's involved in strategy at all knows a book called The Art of War. They all read it by Sun Tzu. I would love everyone doing military strategy, political strategy, peace studies, to read a book called The Art of Law and to find it just as compelling as Sun Tzu, because I think it is. So when did we lose? Because you and I both know international law used to be core, front and center. Peace studies grows out of international relations, which grows out of two fields, international law and the study of government. And now we study sociologically the origins of violence. We study interpersonal techniques for resolving disputes, but we do very little in terms of developing the legal institutions, even though those are the oldest, packed full of normative guidance. Mm -hmm. And we truly, I understand the critique. We find it boring. Well, I think, Mary Ellen, you pose a series of concerns here. Let me unpack a couple, and they're judgments on my part. I love the section where you were talking about the interaction about uh, Hans Morgenthau and others on this, and Morgenthau's dominance, and even to the point at which... uh, A famous realist, by the way, for for people who don't... And international lawyer. 17, 20 editions of the politics of nations, which became the Bible of international relations for more than a generation. Still. It's still Still read by everyone. Still. 
I think there are a couple of issues that lead to this situation, certainly with their roots in the 50s. The treaty making, the institution building in the post-World War II world was stultified partly by the impasse in Korea and the Korean War, while UN authorization, but also the dynamic between the two big powers, China and the United States, seemed to create a tension there that was psychologically unresolved. Secondly, the movement to the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War began to raise concerns of what later would be called American exceptionalism. Right. It seems that if the great powers of the world were willing in that immediate post-war period to live with the relationship between the creation and maintenance of stable organizations that were grounded in international law, some of which were courts, but some of which were things like, as you rightly point out, the UN Security Council and then a host of related regional organizations, that sort of two-legged dynamic of peace and order, law and organization, marched lockstep into the early 60s. Right. But the dynamic and ambiguity of the U.S. participation in Vietnam with both the law of war consequences of that on the ground, but also the unwillingness to entertain the domestic discussion in the United States, were we properly at war? Right. Was there, in fact, an now exception to the constitutional vote to go to war being housed only in Congress. The odd duality that for all of the U.S. culture in the 50s through 80s that said courts are important, everyone should have their day in court, that legal redress is fundamental to the American character, the more we asserted that, the more we began to think about ourselves as exceptional in the international order. And there was a wavering for the commitment to international organization. And as we know, an on again, off again rise, both in US society, but also among major politicians, particularly on the Republican side, beginning with Reagan, of a rejection that our city light on the top of a hill should be held to standards that also somehow control and are meant to constrain dictators and other lesser states. And that dynamic at the end of the Vietnam War and in the ambiguity of our interpretation of what that war meant for our own place in the world made law a vulnerable dynamic, not just as a important political rubric, but in terms of politicians and diplomats wielding it in that theater of art and wielding it in terms of the courts. I'd add one more thing, of course, since international affairs programs, certainly professional degrees at the MA level, training practitioners, but concomitantly the political science departments that you mentioned elsewhere, by the 70s have begun to delve into new, what they think are state-of-the-art areas like international political economy, international right. scientific exchange. And so if your hiring is going on, you tend to look for people with those expertise, not the folks with specializations in international law and international organization who had been in place throughout the 50s and 60s in mainstream curriculums. And you began to see instead of a curriculum, let's say at the undergraduate level even, that taught international law as one course and international organization as another, it weaves into a single course, international law and organization. And then when that person retires, 
they're not replaced by somebody with that expertise. You give way to a political economist or a U.S. national security expert or someone who does area studies as well as general IR. And the configuration of that meant a lessening of that for the general population that would receive only BA political science degrees, and that's part of our core citizenry. So I think we've got some hints, and we invite, of course, listeners to read the book and see even more about how we got to the point where we're at today. And it is a complex and really interesting story, and I love your emphasizing exceptionalism. I see how realism says to a country like the United States with vast resources that can build this big military that realism gives the U.S. an excuse to take this exceptionalist stance. But that then becomes absolutely counterproductive to a commitment to law. The one thing law clearly stands for is equality. It's the most important normative basis, and there's no comfortable way that you can be committed to international law, to equality in terms of sovereign statehood with every other sovereign state, when you're holding on to this view that you're exceptional. You've got to let go of that, at least in very core mm. ways. So that's actually one of the points of the book, because how do I think I can we can respond as a global world to this problem? It's amazing to read history and to see how countries have often found themselves claiming to be exceptions to the rules. So how do we get out of it? And you know, there's kind of a material answer, but I'm hoping that people will be attracted to the idea that I put forward in the book. I mean, the material answer, and I do speak to this because I think it's a fact of life, we're looking at rising China. And if the U.S. could consider itself exceptional on 9-11 and able to use military force in ways that nobody 10 years before would have begun to think was lawful, The idea that we will continue to do this with no thought for China and how we want to see perhaps a new bipolar world, that to me is foolhardy on this country's part. We never hear our current president, President Trump, mention international law when he's talking about using military force. But if we're concerned about a new, an order in which all countries are bound by a sense of rules, whether it's trade, environment, so on, that has to end. But how? what's really going to attract people who are so imbued with this idea that your pile of weapons is what counts? And this notion, and we're seeing it now, and I think it's a clear migration from having dissed international law through the 60s and 70s at the international level, dissing law at that level has migrated into real concern about the rule of law within countries. I think it's a constant topic of conversation in this country, great fear, discussion of impeachment of a president who is not respecting the law. And that's what the United States has always stood for in the world. So how do we attract back? And I'm truly impressed by those who created the idea of realism. You know, they cooked it up in the 1930s, and within a century it took over the world. Can't we come up with a counter idea? And we used to have one. We in peace studies movement, certainly in the U.S., came out of a religious commitment to peace. We're living in a global community in which we want everyone involved in this 
movement for peace and this new excitement, this new attraction against war in favor, against violence of all kinds in favor of nonviolent means of resolving our disputes, of promoting peace. We can't rely on a certain one particular religion. And we can't even, we don't want to boil religion down to some kind of common denominator. But we do actually have secular, ethical, and philosophical approaches that do rely on the wisdom of the great religions and find in those religions some extraordinarily compatible idea. The idea I have that I've put forward in the book, and I hope it sparks other people to come up with similar ideas, why equality is the norm around which we should constantly be thinking for international relations, for the promotion of peace, is this idea that we see that in nature. We know from aesthetic philosophers that what we see in the most beautiful tree, for example, is the more symmetrical tree. The great St. Thomas Aquinas used as the symbol of beauty, the rose, the rose in first bloom. A rose is beautiful because it has these symmetrical petals. It creates this beautiful, holistic thing. That idea, to have that at the core of all of our notions, that there should be a symmetry, a beauty, we only get that through law. We don't get it through realism and focus on materialism. That is not a, that is a place of exceptionalism, of self-centeredness. It is not the place that takes us out to the other. Materialism says, I'm more important than you. I'm going to outcompete. I'm going to have more stuff at the end of the day. Aesthetics says that you and I are equal. We see in each other something wonderful. I would go out of my way. I would give up my stuff so that you can have more. And it's that ethic, that notion of beauty in our world, of proportion, of equality, that we're sorely lacking as opposed to just brute force. And I think one of the things you accent so well in the book that reinforces this is that the principles of equality are complemented by the participation. There's no greater reverence for the equality of all states than that they could participate in the rulemaking itself. On the basis um, of on equality. On the basis of equality, but also the notion that one needs a search for community, which will take us back to the notion of creating organizations that are larger than the state as the definitive actor. You know, realism is based in the notion of the state as the singular most important authoritative decision maker in a world of disruptive states. And the best way you can undermine, as the Europeans showed us in the 1950s through now, to undermine a cluster of disruptive states is to go beyond the sovereignty, geography, even culture of single-stateness and tie authority equality, participation, and rulemaking to a larger kind of entity. Nobody has to argue here for world government, right. but you do have to argue for bringing the continuity and peace with order that we have in many realms that go unrecognized internationally. I mean, look at the international flight system. Okay, there's something incredibly complex about the amount of airplanes that operate in the globe on a daily basis, but we have extremely few accidents. 
We have high standards for maintenance and going back and forth between countries. We've even been able to eliminate for almost all possible cases air piracy. Now, how can you have that complex set of organizations, which are based on mutual participation, the equality of standards, the equality of states and actors, and not say we can translate that to the international environmental field or the international field for the regulation of force? Well, I think, George, there's one tricky part of what you just described. If all aspects of international law were of the international aviation kind, we would have no problem mm -hmm. because that's a close reciprocal. Everyone sees the self-interest in mm -hmm. allowing each other's planes to fly right. into their airspace. What they don't get, let's talk about the environment, is what's in it for me if I reduce my greenhouse gases, but you don't reduce yours. So in areas like war and peace, where the United States has an outsized advantage in weapons, and you know population and resources why should we give up that tool because you know when there are so many puny countries in the world that can't possibly do anything to us and i really wrote the book for those non-reciprocal areas where we're really asking states people everywhere to make some sacrifice for the good of others and i think it's that exact point that we have lost as an international community because we're so into, well, I'll do it if I get something out of it. And this is part of the weakness of religion, the weakness of ethical, philosophical areas of inquiry, no longer grabbing people. In the words of the famous song, you know, we've all become the material girl. We don't know why we do things for love anymore. The great philosopher of Oxford, who I think is amazing and I highlight in the book, Iris Murdoch, she says that really the core inquiry of philosophical ethics is unselfing. We're all able to compete. We all get why we do things in self-interest. Mm -hmm. We're capable, and I think this is the great insight of aesthetics, we're capable of being selfless. But Murdoch says, more than anything else, we need to be taught selflessness. Not because you get something, Murdoch says, we don't, she doesn't even use the word love as what she's talking about because she says even love is selfish. People will give love because they're expecting it back. She wants to see people act, she knows they're capable of it. She wants to see education in pure altruism, the kind of education that the Buddha, the Christ, Lesser figures like Gandhi, who would give up all comfort and ask people to give up everything, maybe not for their generation, but for the next one. So let's reignite that. And I don't think I've come close to doing much more than saying that's what we're missing in the world today. The reason to do it for the other that has a universal language that doesn't rely on a specific religious orientation. And I think that the way you conclude the book brings us to that as the eyes of the prize that we should have. I'm going to suggest maybe, unfortunately, the deterioration of the last 30 years of these basic principles means that what we should be working on in both law and peace studies and other areas like education and training is we're going to need some new steps to figure out how to get there to get people to appreciate that that's the ultimate prize. Right. I'm willing, for example, to put a lot more emphasis on simply enlightened self-interest and reciprocity mm -hmm. before people can embrace equality and full participation of all. Because I think those were 
underappreciated cornerstone steps that we need to restore. And I think it's also important in the mix of this, as we've said earlier on, to debunk the centrality of militarism that ties to realism, which ties to not just a preference among policy people for the use of force, but a skewing of the empirics of what makes it work. Right. The science itself tells you empirically it doesn't work and deterioratingly so, but more importantly, it leaves no realm for the art of law or other dynamics. Well, I think I'm less patient than you. I love what you just said because we talked about the steps that got us to this place and then you are suggesting that we reverse those steps and we take an incremental and that's usually, we know as educators, the best way for people to really gain an idea is Mm -hmm. to sink in and slowly and incrementally and in fact, best changes in law are incremental changes. But I don't think we can wait. So that's why I tried to catapult to something that I hope is going to just grab so much more enthusiasm that we can leap over and have a more effective change faster because it's not a complete change. It's a supplement that will remedy the overdominance of very negative forces in the world. And here's the core idea of the book. I racked my brain. What attracts people? What do they want to do freely and willingly as much as they want to do violence? As much as they want to, as they're fascinated by war. Every video game is some violent killing game. It is so attractive to people. And after years of thinking, my publisher is very unhappy about how many years, I think I came up with this idea. The thing that attracts people even more than war is art. Yes. People will go to an art museum. They will go to a symphony. They will go to a concert. They will immerse themselves in the transcendent beauty of religious ritual. That is what attracts people. So if we can begin to depict law as real involvement with something so creative, something so transcendent, that something that feels to them like the standing in front of the Mona Lisa, something that is even more beautiful, it is like watching the sunset over the Grand Canyon. I mean, this is what gives people that true and authentic thrill. And we can depict, this is really on the international lawyers to begin to reteach how and what international law is so far from boring it's the chance that everyone in the world has to engage in true beauty we can begin to use that vocabulary and show people the world and now we have this great media like podcasts and streaming video from the international court of justice all countries in the world can participate by the commitment people in the world are the audience they are the public they are in the theater of these great dramas. So why doesn't a country like China embrace the opportunity to go to arbitration with the Philippines over treatment of their shared maritime space? Why don't the Chinese step up and show what eloquent and artistic performers on the world legal stage they are vis-a-vis the Philippines? That's a place of equality for it, a very small country, a very big one. And the big one was afraid to be in that space 
because it was not on the basis of some material power, it was on the basis of normative power. Mm. It's our duty as educators outside of international law, everyone who's interested in peace, to encourage this view of the law and this view to begin to really encourage their governments to see these international fora differently. These are theaters of performance where they can be leaders regardless of size and where the biggest of all have the most to prove in terms of how well they can perform. George, this conversation was, as all my conversations with you, I feel I'll come out of this enlightened. I've had just an enjoyable time being with you again, and thank you for everything you've done for Peace Studies. So, thank you. Well, you're very kind, colleague. I do hope that Cambridge or you has an opportunity to send this to every presidential candidate of any party in our upcoming and very important election. Because leadership, understanding this is very, very critical. I'll pass it on to marketing. You've been listening to the inaugural episode of the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find future episodes of the CrocCast at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and online at croc.nd.edu. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people to find our episodes. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, Follow us online at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.